and welcome to Relevant History. I'm Dan Toller. We left off last episode in the year 1889 with Ethiopian King Manelik II signing a treaty with Italy, the Treaty of Uchale. As it turns out, Manelik was deceived, and this treaty gave Italy the right to essentially have Ethiopia as at least a protectorate, if not a full-blown colony. And I said that Menelik refused, and that Italy would now have to fight if they wanted Ethiopia to be their colony. But in fact, there had already been low-level fighting for about three years. See, some Italians from a port city in Eritrea had built a fort on a hilltop. And this fort overlooked an oasis that was regularly used by Ethiopian trade caravans. The fort itself, by the way, was actually inside the Ethiopian border. So the local governor, a general named Ras Alua, uh, protested to the local Italian military commander about this violation, and the Italians had responded by dispatching a force of 550 men and some artillery to reinforce the garrison at the fort. Rasalua learned of this through a spy, and he led a force of 14,000 Ethiopian warriors to ambush the Italian reinforcement column. Well, even with their superior weapons and their artillery, uh, the Italian column of 550 men simply could not fight off 14,000 attackers, and all but 80 of them are killed. Right, those 80 are some wounded men who managed to sneak away. Uh, by the way, over a thousand Ethiopians are killed in this fight too, but nonetheless it was an Ethiopian victory, and this humiliated the Italians. Right? This is a European power. Europeans have been beating up on African countries for you know a few decades now, so for Italy to lose, that's not just a loss of a battle or even the loss of you know, the opportunity to gain some territory. That is a loss of international prestige in the eyes of the great powers. So looking to avenge this loss, which in 1886 this loss had been to uh, King Johannes, uh, looking to avenge this loss, the Italians had urged Menelik, right? remember we talked about him being the king of Shewa, uh, they had urged Menelik to revolt against Johannes, and they'd actually sold him weapons. Uh, now, this was one of the several rebellions that Johannes was having to deal with at this time, and Menelik never actually had to fight imperial forces. See, Johannes dispatched uh, Rasalula again to put down this rebellion, but before Rasalula could get there, uh, Johannes died in his battle against the Sudanese rebels. So there was never actually a battle. And ultimately, the Ethiopian nobility... Uh, supported Manelik for the throne in part because of his relationship uh, 
to the Italians. Right? The thinking was that if Ethiopia had a emperor who was friendly to the Italians, then the Italians would be less likely to be aggressive towards Ethiopia. And so Menelik becomes emperor, and in 1889 he signs the Treaty of Wuchale, inadvertently making Ethiopia a colony of Italy. But as the Italians would now learn, Menelik II is much like his namesake, the original Menelik, the mythical founder of the Solomonic dynasty. He is no puppet. But he does not begin his reign by immediately repudiating the treaty. See, he has to make sure that Ethiopia is strong and unified and ready to meet any Italian response. So instead, he shores up his internal support. Among a number of other moves, he bans the slave trade and actually orders that the hands of slave traders be cut off. This will be the first of a handful of efforts to finally stamp out slavery in Ethiopia. And he continues working on a new capital city. Uh, this is the city of Addis Ababa, the city that is Ethiopia's capital even to this day. Uh, Menelik had begun work on this city while he was still the king of Shewa. It was supposed to be his provincial capital, but it is well located within Ethiopia. It's relatively central, so turns out that it makes a pretty good national capital as well. Uh, and as part of this move, Menelik signs an agreement with the French to connect it to the city of Djibouti by rail. This is important because it allows uh, Ethiopia to bypass uh, Italian Eritrea. Right? Djibouti is up to the north of Eritrea. Once this rail line is complete, uh, Ethiopia will have some other way of getting goods into the country. Unfortunately, it would not help Menelik right away. Uh, this rail line would take longer than his life to complete. He also creates a modern postal service and a modern central bank, the Bank of Abyssinia. And these efforts are all very popular, and they serve not only to tie the people together in, in terms of just everybody supporting his rule, but the Postal Service in particular uh, unifies people in, in the same sense the Internet has unified many people today. It uh, allows for communication. Well, four years into his reign, in 1893, Menelik decides that it is time and he formally repudiates the Treaty of Wuchale. He does not attack Italy. Instead, he simply refuses to recognize Italian overlordship. In a letter to the Italian king, he says, quote, I have discovered something humiliating for my kingdom, and proceeds to explain that uh, there was a difference in the language in the treaties, and... Of course, the Italians would never intentionally make Ethiopia their colony, so surely we can just clean this up. Well, 
This impudence comes as a shock to the Italian government, a government run by a particularly bellicose prime minister by the name of Oreste Crispi. Crispi is a former liberal revolutionary. Uh, he had been friends with Giuseppe Garibaldi, the Italian George Washington, the man who oversaw the unification of the Kingdom of Italy. Well, Crispi had encouraged a number of his major military campaigns and been a significant backer, and he had been a major figure in Italian politics ever since the 1860s. And by this point, he was a beloved prime minister, and he was also feeling his oats a little bit. Right? We talked in the last episode about Italy wanting to prove that it was on par with the great powers, England and France. And uh, Crispy is... Uh, doing this in a couple of ways. Uh, he has recently cut off diplomatic relations with Portugal over a minor insult just to show them who is boss. Uh, and he's trying to get Bismarck's Germany to go to war with France. Bismarck is a little smarter than that. Uh, but you can see Crispy's a guy who kind of wants to fight everybody right now, and he's certainly not going to negotiate with Ethiopia. If this Ethiopian king will not submit, then he will have war. Italy opens by annexing a few small holdings around their original territory in Eritrea. These are areas that can be used as staging grounds for a full-on invasion. And through the beginning of 1895, rather than launching that invasion, uh, they get bogged down with an anti-Italian rebellion by local Eritreans. Menelik sort of bides his time, hoping that this will play out in his favor. Maybe this rebellion will succeed and he won't have to fight the Italians. He also has to play uh, some political games to stay in power himself, Remember uh, that the Italians can also try and foment rebellion inside Ethiopia, and they're doing just that. Now, thankfully, there is a strong anti-colonial fever among the Ethiopian nobles. In the past, when Ethiopia has faced outside attack, we have sometimes seen the country split. That doesn't happen here. Almost to a man, the Ethiopian nobles stand behind Emperor Menelik. As a matter of fact, as early as 1894, a group of nobles who had previously been opposed to him, uh, they had appeared in Addis Ababa and had laid stones at his feet. This is a Ethiopian traditional symbol of submission. In the face of this external attack, all of Ethiopia would be united. And during this time of uh, rebellion in Eritrea, Menelik also tries to get some allies in on his side. Remember that uh, 
Crispi, the prime minister of Italy, has been trying to get a war started against France. Well, Menelik goes to France, and he asks for help, thinking maybe France will take this opportunity to smack down Italy. Well, instead, France uh, uses the opportunity to get some concessions from Italy. The two had been fighting over Tunisia. It was essentially in French control already, and France basically said, hey, you know, we'll stay neutral in this whole Ethiopian affair if you recognize that Tunisia is indeed a French colony. And Crispy said, okay, that's fine, just stay out of our business in Ethiopia. And France stays out. However, they do sell Menelik about a dozen uh, artillery pieces, these are Hotchkiss 37mm cannons. And this will be important because these cannons have longer range than any of the guns that the Italians are putting into commission. And Menelik recognizes the value of these guns. He doesn't just put anybody in charge of them. Uh, he puts some of his most intelligent men in charge of the artillery, he has them drill incessantly, and they become expert marksmen with artillery. As we'll see, that is important uh, later on as the war progresses. One other country that does send a little help is Russia. They send several thousand modern rifles, uh, Mosin Nagant rifles, along with 42 mountain artillery, and they actually send 15 Russian advisors to help the Ethiopians learn to use that artillery. So again, Menelik's got some pretty good guns on his side, actually. But other than that, Ethiopia stands alone against the Italian army. And in mid-September 1895, Menelik decides that the time is right to strike back. The rainy season is coming to a close. The roads, which have been muddy, are going to dry out. Travel is going to be easy. This is it. And on September 17th, Menelik issues the following proclamation and sends it out to the four corners of his land via his postal service. And he says, quote, At this time, an enemy has crossed our God-given seashore boundaries with the aim of destroying our country and altering our religion. So far, I have been somewhat lax in my response to such incursions because of the plague that has consumed animals and the famine that has exhausted our people. The enemy has taken advantage of our inactivity and has been penetrating like a mole deeper and deeper inside our land. But now, with God as my shield, I shall not surrender my land to the enemy. O people of my land, I do not think that I have been unjust to you heretofore, and neither have you failed me. Now I ask all of you who are able-bodied to help me with your strength. If you are physically infirm, give your moral support for the sake of your children, your wife, and your faith. But if you cheat and stay behind when you could have volunteered in this campaign, be forewarned that you have chosen to pick a quarrel with me, in which case I will come back to settle the quarrel. I swear in the name of the Virgin Mary that I shall entertain no intercession on this matter, 
As my campaign commences in October, I shall expect to meet organized volunteers from Shiwa by the middle of October in Wara'ilu. Unquote. And in response to Menelik's proclamation, between 120,000 and 150,000 Ethiopian men would answer the call. Of these, around 100,000 of them had rifles, many of them the modern Mosin Nagant rifles. To meet this force, the Italian commander, a man named Oreste Baratieri, he has 18,000 men and 56 cannons. Now, on paper, this might look like a mismatch, but keep in mind that this is the age of colonialism, right? Small European forces are used to using technological superiority to defeat much larger armies of local people who do not have that technology, right? If you have a row of machine gun emplacements and the enemy just has spears, well, as long as you have enough ammunition for those machine guns, the enemy does not stand a chance. But there's not really much of a technological mismatch here. The Ethiopians have modern technology, and they're very good at using it. And General Baratieri's problems are compounded by supply shortages. There's not enough food in the area. He doesn't have enough money to replenish his arms and his ammunition as they're needed. And... Oreste Crispi, right, the Italian prime minister, and, and the other civilian leadership, they expect him to live off the land. Crispi tells him to simply tax the Ethiopians the way Napoleon taxed his conquered subjects and use those taxes to fund his uh, expedition. Well, when Napoleon was invading Italy, right, when Napoleon was invading other parts of Europe, those were fairly developed areas for the time. Right? There was some kind of tax base there for him to tax. Right? The areas Baratieri is currently occupying are full of mostly nomadic herdspeople. How is he supposed to tax them, right, even if he taxed them to the point where they're starving? He is not going to have anywhere near enough money to properly fund a modern military expedition on enemy territory. That is just not a plausible mission, and Baratieri knows this. Right? When he complains about supplies, it's not just idle whinging. Right? He is an experienced campaigner. Right? Crispy may have been a funder and supporter of Garibaldi's, but Baratieri had campaigned with Garibaldi. He had fought in some very hard campaigns in Sardinia and Sicily, and he knew what he was doing, and he knew that he really didn't have enough supplies to fight as effectively as his army was capable of fighting. In December of 1895, Menelik's armies enter Tigray, 
This is a region in northeastern Ethiopia, right next to Eritrea. It's the part of Ethiopia that the Italians have occupied, and these troops clash with uh, advanced elements of the Italians. The Italians retreat. Uh, these Ethiopian troops then follow up by besieging an Italian fort in the Tigrayan capital of Mekle. Uh, the Ethiopian artillerymen are so accurate that an Italian artilleryman famously exclaims, with a little bit of casual racism, he says, It's impossible that they're not European. Like I said, Menelik trained his artillerymen hard, and those Hotchkiss guns were already proving their worth. Uh, Menelik accepts the Italian surrender on January 21st, and the garrison of the fortress is actually given mules to take their supplies and their wounded back to Baratieri. This served a couple of purposes. One, it made Menelik look magnanimous. It was good PR. But number two, it got the Italians out of there without any further fighting. It gave him access to some pretty good defensive positions along the Eritrean border, uh, expecting that Baratieri would launch a counterattack. Uh, but Baratieri actually wants to be on the defensive. Uh, he recognizes Ethiopian numerical strength, right? They've just sort of overtaken these uh, troops that he had thought were pretty secure in defensive positions, and uh, if he is going to be successful, he's going to have to dig in. Right? There's no way he thinks he can actually successfully attack the Ethiopians, uh, not when they have this kind of artillery and uh, uh, rifles. But for the same reasons, uh, Menelik's Russian advisors are actually pressing him to attack. You have numerical superiority. Why are you sitting here waiting for Baratieri to counterpunch? He's just digging in deeper every day. Go, go, go. But that's why Menelik doesn't go. He fears these entrenched positions. He knows if he attacks, a lot of his men are going to die. So with neither commander willing to commit to battle... The two forces face off across a line of mountain passes near the border town of Adwa. The Italian army is encamped on the east, and the Ethiopian army is encamped on the west. And both commanders are trying to kind of outweigh each other. Well, Crispy cannot wait. Right, the Italian prime minister. He's too impatient. He wants this done with. And he sends a series of scathing telegrams to Baratieri, insulting him, right, basically calling him a coward for refusing to attack these primitive Africans. And Baratieri's battalion commanders are also urging him to attack. Right, they do not see the writing on the wall the way he does, that an offensive is just not very smart. Uh, but eventually, Prime Minister Crispy threatens to fire him 
and Bharatiri has no choice but to act. If you're a fan of Roman history, this is sort of a parallel to the Battle of Pharsalus. Right? Pompey had Caesar where he wanted him. He had Caesar pinned down without supplies, and he just had to starve him out. But the senators wanted blood, and Pompey attacked, and he lost everything. But Pompey was no fool. He had a plan at Pharsalus. It just didn't work. Well, Baratieri has a plan at the Battle of Adwa. His troops are divided into four battalions. Three of those battalions are made up of regular Italian troops, and the fourth is made up of native Ascari warriors. These are people recruited from Eritrea uh, who are opposed to Ethiopian rule and would rather be on the side of the Italians. Uh, The Ascari warriors are familiar with the terrain. They can march much faster than the Italians in uh, the harsh conditions. And despite the fact that these are sort of his best troops, good old-fashioned racism comes into play, and the Ascari warriors end up being issued inferior rifles, right? Not just inferior to the Italian rifles, but also inferior to Menelik's Mosin Nagants, right? And even the Italian troops themselves are poorly armed. Their rifles aren't even as good as the Mosin Nagants. They should have better rifles, right? But the new Carcano Model 91 rifles that they were supposed to be using, they hadn't been issued yet because Baratieri still had a whole bunch of ammo for the old rifles and wanted to use it up because he was under price constraints. Between that, poor rations, and shoddy footwear on rough terrain, the Italian morale, both the regular troops and the Ascari troops, it was not what it should have been going into this battle. Now, Bartieri deploys his four battalions overnight. Three battalions are to advance west towards the Ethiopian camp. They're supposed to go not through the mountain passes, but over the peaks. The idea is to capture the high ground above Manalek's camp while his men are asleep. The Ascari will be the southernmost battalion, and the middle and northern battalions will be Italian, and then the 4th Battalion, which is also Italian regulars, uh, that will remain in the valley behind in reserve to come in in case there's trouble. Now, the purpose of taking this high ground in the middle of the night is to provoke Menelik into attacking uphill. Right, Baratieri, even as he is attacking wants to maintain a defensive posture. He wants Ethiopian troops attacking 
Italian troops from a disadvantageous position. That's how he's going to win. Good plan on paper, but plans have a way of falling apart once the battle actually gets started. And in the case of the Battle of Adwa, uh, things start to fall apart overnight as the troops are deploying. A lot of the maps of the area are badly drawn. It's dark. The territory is unfamiliar. On top of that, it's overcast, so it's really dark. Uh, and overnight, the three battalions become separated. They're no longer in contact. They can't see each other. And as they're all trying to find their positions and form up on the high ground, the Ascari Battalion runs into some of Rasalula's cavalry. I remember him, the guy who had been fighting off the Italians uh, earlier when they took that fort. Well, he's back, and uh, he goes running back to the Ethiopian camp and reports to the emperor that, uh, hey, the Italians are attacking. Ironically, he finds Menelik at prayer, asking for guidance because... His army will have to disperse the very next day, March 2nd, for lack of supplies. If Baratieri had held out literally one more day, the Ethiopian army would have dispersed in front of him. Instead, Menelik has the opportunity to launch a counterattack. He can do it potentially while the Italians are still forming up. So, Baratieri's troops are already in a little bit of trouble, but to make things worse, Italian men and officers are getting inconsistent orders. Some of them believe that they are supposed to attack the Ethiopians outright, rather than merely hold the high ground. So, while some units are starting to form up, others are continuing to advance. Uh, the middle battalion of Italian regulars stops right where it's supposed to, more or less. Uh, but the southern battalion, right, uh, the battalion of Ascari under Italian General Albertoni, uh, that, instead of forming up, continues advancing towards Menelik's camp. Uh, one of Albertoni's officers uh, tries to tell his men to form up, and Albertoni uh, says to him, Go ahead! I don't want any hesitation. You're not afraid, are you? It almost sounds as if he's going to attack regardless of Baratieri's orders. And what happens is that his men do indeed come right up to Menelik's camp, even as some of his men are starting to form up to counterattack. Uh, so they come under fire, and they stop, and they have to sort of form a hasty defensive line. Uh, and they're already four miles southwest of where they should be. They're separated from those middle and northern Italian battalions by quite some distance. And to make things worse, at the sound of gunfire from this battle that is now breaking out right at the edge of the camp. Uh, more Ethiopian soldiers here, and uh, they start uh, 
grabbing their weapons and moving into counterattack. They have superior rifles, remember. Now they have superior numbers as more and more of them are coming in. And this is all putting Albertoni's Ascari Battalion under heavy pressure. To make things worse, the Italian officers are wearing bright red sashes. They make wonderful targets for the Ethiopian marksmen. Uh, out of 610 Italian officers at the Battle of Adwa, uh, 352 will be dead or wounded by the end of the day. Now, Baratieri, from his position with the Reserve Battalion, can tell that something's wrong. Uh, he knows that Albertoni's way out of position and under attack, and that the Center Battalion is, is good where it is, so he sends a messenger to the Northern Battalion, right, the other Italian battalion, uh, to sort of shuffle south and fill the gap between that Middle Battalion and Albertoni's troops. Right, that will prevent them from getting surrounded, and then uh, the you know, Italian regulars can start providing some fire support there. But the northern battalion commander, he manages to take a wrong turn. Thank you again, inaccurate maps. And instead of going south towards the battle, he wanders off to the north, away from the battlefield, totally uselessly. You'd think, if nothing else, the sound of gunfire from your south would tell you to go south. But he goes north, and Menelik ignores that battalion for now. Um, once he's done with the rest of Baratieri's men, uh, he will deal with that northern battalion. They will later be caught in a narrow pass and slaughtered almost to a man by Oromo cavalry who cry, reap, reap, over and over as they cut them down. But for now, Menelik is going to deal with the middle and southern Italian battalions. Right, and he's going to start with Albertoni's Ascari battalion. He launches a large body of troops into the gap between that uh, middle battalion and uh, Albertoni's battalion. And those troops end up completely surrounding Albertoni's with no help of doing anything but standing and dying. The Ascari break, and they run. Most of them are shot while running away. Very few survive. Um, and... At this point, you know, basically the only force Baratieri has on the field is that middle battalion sitting on the high ground uh, in the middle of the battlefield where it's supposed to. Well, he moves in his reserve battalion uh, to support them, which makes sense, right? If you're thinking of defending that last defensible position, you want your guys all there. But the problem is that the Ethiopians have now occupied the high ground on both sides. Right? That northern and southern battalion are gone. Those areas are clear, and now all of Baratieri's troops are surrounded. He just put his reserves right in the middle of things. By the end of the afternoon, 5,000 to 7,000 Italians are dead and 3,400 are captured. 
The remainder, including about 1,500 wounded, are in disordered retreat back to Eritrea, and roughly 5,000 Ethiopians are also dead. But Italy's army, at least their expeditionary force in Ethiopia, has just been completely annihilated. This defeat at Adwa is a humiliation for Italy, right? A European power losing to a colony. Baratieri is court-martialed, but he is found not guilty. I mean, what did he do wrong? He made the best of an impossible situation. He's found not guilty and forced into retirement. In response to this abject failure and embarrassment, there are widespread riots in Italy. Uh, even uh, Crispy's cabinet at this point wants peace. But he refuses to make peace with people he calls, quote, monkeys, unquote. He also goes so far as to say that he will not negotiate even if the 3,400 Italian prisoners of war all end up being killed. They'll just be more honorable sacrifices for Italian glory. Well, Crispy's government collapses. Within days, a new government is formed, and the Italians immediately sue for peace. And in October of 1896... Italy and Ethiopia signed the Treaty of Addis Ababa. The treaty outlines the borders of Ethiopia and Italian Eritrea, and it formally guarantees Ethiopian independence as a sovereign nation. By the way, those 3,400 Italian prisoners of war don't worry. They're just fine. They get to go home. But the... Ascari warriors who were taken prisoner are seen as traitors. In 1500, Ascari have their right hands and left feet amputated. A permanent reminder that Menelik II will not suffer treason. But just as Menelik is... Stern in his justice. He is also magnanimous in peacetime, and he spends the rest of his reign improving his country. He builds Ethiopia's first power plant. He oversees its first telephone installations, and he has Addis Ababa equipped for modern plumbing. And he reigns over a peaceful Ethiopia for another 13 years, until he suffers a stroke in the year 1909. At that point, he does not die, but he's rendered incapable. His wife, Tetu Betul, briefly rules as regent before a regency council is formed in 1910. This is a group of leading nobles who run the country until Menelik passes away in 1913. At that point, he is succeeded by his son, a young man named Lij Iesu. 
Now, Yesu is too young to be crowned, and to avoid any sort of possible disruption in the country, the Regency Council does not announce Menelik's death for some time. Yesu is, in fact, never crowned. In the year 1916, French intelligence finds out that he is planning to join World War I on the Ottoman side. Worse, from the Ethiopian point of view at least, is that he is planning to convert to Islam. Well, French intelligence tips off the uh, Ethiopian government about this development, and Iesu is ultimately excommunicated by the Abuna, right? the chief Ethiopian bishop. And with him out of the way, Menelik's daughter, Zuditu, is crowned empress in February of 1917. Now, Iesu doesn't go down without a fight. He leads a revolt. But he is ultimately put down by a force under the leadership of a governor named Tafari Makonen, a gentleman who will be very important to our story in just a moment. Iesu, after this defeat, is then imprisoned for the rest of his life. And... There he will stay in prison, except for one escape attempt, but that didn't really come to any of much. Now, the Empress Zuditu is a conservative, and she also loves her family. And by all accounts, she is consumed with a personal sense of guilt for taking the throne from her nephew even if it had to be done. She spends most of her personal efforts on churches, uh, building new ones, renovating old ones, and she spends much of her time in prayer. There is some return of the practice of slavery. This has been slowly creeping back ever since Menelik had a stroke. But there is still some modernization in Ethiopia. Remember that French railroad connection to Addis Ababa uh, that we talked about? Well, that is finally completed in uh, 1917, and Ethiopia has a uh, trade link with the coast that does not go through Italian Eritrea. There is also to be considerable further modernization. See... Zuditu became empress on a condition. She was crowned on condition that she would name Tafari Makonen as her heir. Right, that governor we mentioned who put down Iesu's little rebellion, well, he is also of the Solomonic line. Both Zuditu and Tafari are descended from Emperor Dawit II, who lived in the early 1500s. Now, Zuditu's descent is through Dawit's son, while Tafari's descent is through Dawit's daughter. This means that Zuditu has a superior claim. 
Ethiopian succession allows for queens, much in the same way that England's does. But Zuditu is over 40, and she has no children, at least no living children. A couple of them died, but uh, she has no direct heir. This makes Tafari the next in line. Who is this Tafari Makonan? He is the son of a provincial governor named Rasmakonan, and uh, Rasmakonan was actually a hero at the Battle of Adwa. At the time, Tafari was too young to have fought in the battle. He was only four years old. He was born in 1892. In his youth, uh, he is educated by two teachers, and... uh, He receives a broad and uh, diverse education. Uh, One of his teachers is an Ethiopian monk, controversially a Catholic monk, but nonetheless an Ethiopian monk, and the other is a Mexican surgeon. So you've got uh, a little bit of uh, science and religion there. And when his older brother dies in 1906, he inherits his brother's title and is named governor of a small backwater province at the age of only 14. Now, this title is in name only. There are other people handling the day-to-day affairs. Uh, Tafari Makonan is still completing his studies. But in 1910... During Menelik's post-stroke coma, Tafari becomes governor of Herar. This is a wealthy province in eastern Ethiopia, and not coincidentally, uh, Tafari has spent most of the last several years in the ancient eponymous capital city of Herar uh, studying. So he knows the province well. And as governor, he expands the province's economy, uh, primarily by developing many coffee plantations around the capital city. And he is one of the leaders who helps depose Iesu in 1917, so he has a seat at the table when the post-rebellion negotiations are going on, and that's how he's able to get this uh, agreement where he will be Zuditu's heir. And he actually uh, gets a power-sharing agreement with her, right? She is to rule, right? She is also to be the arbiter of last resort, which is a royal prerogative. Uh, But Tafari Makonan is to administer, right? He is to interpret the laws and apply them. And along with this power, he also receives a title, the title of Ras, which translates roughly to prince or duke. In this case, it's often translated as crown prince. But regardless of how you translate it, he now has the famous name, Rastafari Makonan. And in contrast to the conservative Empress Zudetu, Rastafari believes strongly in modernization, and he immediately sets about making several changes. 
One of the first things he does is he abolishes these feudal governorships. Right? Instead of you know, the eldest son or the second son of whatever house inheriting this governorship, it's going to be a merit-based appointment system. This is quite progressive for the time, but it's also somewhat ironic because that same feudal governorship system is how Rastafari came to power in the first place. But he's trying to modernize things here. Another thing he does in terms of the government structure is he establishes several cabinet ministries. So instead of the emperor or the empress and an ad hoc council of advisors, you're now going to have official ministries and uh, actual ministers to oversee them. Again, in line with modern governments. He reaffirms Menelik's ban on slavery. And in 1923, he actually goes a step further he announces a government program to educate all former slaves. He's not just going to make sure they're all set free. He's going to make sure that they have the skills and the knowledge to compete in this modern economy he's trying to build. And not coincidentally either, uh, he takes this step uh, right before applying to join the League of Nations. Right, the sort of proto-United Nations that existed at the time. But the application process to the League of Nations is a long and tedious one, particularly for an African country. While that's going on, Rastafari oversees the building of a new highway system. He wants to link Ethiopia's major cities together and facilitate more trade. This is the age of the automobile. No longer are dirt roads going to suffice. If Ethiopia is going to modernize, they need real roads. They're also going to need a better health care system. Rastafari builds hospitals in all the major cities and the provincial cities, trying to stop people from dying or be debilitated due to diseases that could be cured by modern miracles like penicillin. He abolishes the ancient feudal criminal code, right, the code that laid down punishments like amputation. Well, that goes away. Ethiopia is not doing that kind of medieval stuff anymore. He begins modernizing the military again. Right? We saw Menelik overseeing the transformation of Ethiopia into a true gunpowder army uh, with modern rifles and everything. Well, Rastafari wants modern organization. He establishes a military academy. Before that, all your Ethiopian generals were whoever the leaders of the nobility were. Now there is going to be an officer corps to lead the army. And there's going to be an Ethiopia Scout Association modeled on the Boy Scouts. Why? Well, to prepare young Ethiopian men for military service in a modern military. And Rastafari does not neglect diplomacy either. 
he tours the Middle East, and he tours Europe, and on one of his European tours, he brings lions with him in his retinue, just to show off. He gives some of these to European notables. He gives them to George V of England. He gives one to the Paris Zoo, for instance. But all of Rastafari's modernizing moves are not supported by everybody. In particular, this new merit-based system for choosing governors is opposed by a lot of the nobility. And in 1928, some rebel nobles launch an all-out assault on Addis Ababa itself. Rastafari fights back with modern technology. The rebels are armed with mostly spears and a few antique rifles. He has biplanes with machine guns and bombs. And the uh, rebel force quickly disperses after these weapons are brought to bear. This use of air power is a prelude to what the Ethiopian people as a whole are soon to experience. Later in 1928, Rastafari signs a 20-year peace accord with the Italians, hoping to ensure some stability along that Eritrean border. Well, Zuditu and some of the more reactionary nobles are going to have none of this, and they bring Rastafari up on charges for treason. He's found not guilty. But these nobles are not willing to take no for an answer, and in September, a group of them, with Zudito's support, they plot to launch a coup against Rastafari. Well, he gets wind of this, and he and some of his men attempt to arrest the plotters, but the plotters take refuge in the mausoleum of King Menelik. An appropriately spooky place for this kind of affair, because Rastafari's men then surround them and essentially wait for their surrender. But in the meantime, these nobles were able to get word out and a bunch of their men surround Rastafari's troops. So he has in turn been surrounded, but not to be outdone, he gets some word out to his own men, who then show up and surround that group of rebels. Uh, And these men have with them an obsolete fiat tank but it's enough to uh, make these nobles think twice about trying to break out. And after a short standoff, Empress Zuditu agrees to crown Rastafari as Nagus, which is the Ethiopian title for king. This is not quite as high of a title as emperor or empress, right? He is still Zuditu's vassal, in this feudal system, but he ranks higher than a duke or a crown prince. 
Well, this arrangement does not sit well with Zuditu's husband. He launches a rebellion against Rastafari in 1929 and is quickly defeated and killed in the battle. And within a year, the empress herself dies. Now, some traditional versions of the story say that she died of grief. She loved her husband and she could no longer go on without him. Modern historians say that she probably died from complications of diabetes. This particular royal death in Ethiopia, as it turns out, is neither overly dramatic nor mysterious. And as per the arrangement for the succession, on November 2nd, 1930... Negus Tafari Makonan is crowned emperor. And, as is tradition in Ethiopia, he takes a new name, along with his new title. He is His Imperial Majesty, Emperor Haile Selassie I, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, Conquering Lion of the Tribe of Judah, Elect of God. And starting immediately after his coronation, Emperor Haile Selassie gets to work. And in keeping with what he did as crown prince, uh, he starts out by making some changes to the government, to how the government itself works. In 1931, Haile Selassie promulgates Ethiopia's first written constitution. The emperor will still have power, but it will be basically a constitutional monarchy. There will be a bicameral legislature uh, with you know, basically a house and a senate, uh, if you want to think of it that way, and uh, that legislature will have certain limited powers. But it's sort of a taste of democracy. And I would almost say, even more importantly, there will be an independent judiciary. Right? The emperor will no longer be the arbiter of last dispute. Right? If there is a question before the law, that question will be answered by the courts. That said, the monarchy will not only remain hereditary, it will be limited to heirs of Haile Selassie. So, the rest of the Solomonic dynasty is basically out of luck at this point. In 1934, he has a new royal palace built in Addis Ababa. And this palace is an absolutely massive building, it's now a museum, actually, and it was completed in eight months by 800 workers. And it stands on the grounds of Addis Ababa University, which Haile Selassie also founded. See, he takes a great interest in education, and not only does he found this university, he frequently visits with the students. Uh, he takes an interest uh, not just in their classes, but even in their daily lives. Uh, and he pushes hard 
for education throughout the country in science, engineering, and the arts. Right? He wants to build a modern economy, and to do that, he needs educated workers. He even goes so far as to spend his own personal money out of his own pocket to buy books for students. And all of these education efforts in particular, by the way, are opposed by members of the nobility, right? as you usually find in this sort of aristocratic society. The upper classes do not want the general population to become educated. They might start questioning their place in society. But Haile Selassie knows that there's going to be some kind of pushback on this from the nobility. And he sort of preemptively mollifies them by aggressively courting the Orthodox Church. There have been a lot of devout emperors before, and Haile Selassie is one of them. In fact, the name Haile Selassie, right, Rastafari's new imperial name, it means power of the Trinity in Amharic. And one of the things Haile Selassie does to court the church, so to speak, is he appoints several new bishops, over a dozen, directly from the Ethiopian stock of priests. Right? Throughout most of Ethiopian history, they have gotten most of their bishops from the Patriarch of Alexandria. Well, now Haile Selassie is giving them African bishops, and as the official head of the Ethiopian Orthodox Church, he has every right to do this. Well, with not just the general population, but the very powerful Orthodox Church on Haile Selassie's side, the nobility, even the more reactionary ones, are not willing to oppose him. You know, certainly not in public. And another thing he does is he, he continues the practice of traveling the country to meet with his people. We've seen this from many of the emperors throughout the story of Ethiopia. They travel around the country, visit various tribes, see how things are going in different districts. This is an old-school style of rulership, and Haile Selassie continues it, but he does it in style. Right? Remember all those highways that he built when he was crown prince? Well... Now Haile Selassie cruises around in his automobiles, and he's got a whole collection of them. Uh, he loves his Rolls Royces. Uh, he's also a fan of Citroën, among others. And he's often seen in these fancy cars just bashing around the countryside. If you think of it, it's almost like a medieval king, right? showing up to a parade with a massive destrier that's decked out in all kinds of ridiculous horse armor that's really impractical and unnecessary, but man, does it look good on the parade ground. Well, that is Haile Selassie with his cars. And later on in life, this same enthusiasm for 
new and improved methods of transportation would extend to the air, and he would be seen flying around in airplanes and even helicopters. And this penchant for modernization does not end with the civilian realm. He is also modernizing the military. He's got a few tanks at this point, a handful of anti-aircraft guns. He's got some old biplanes laying around. Uh, he can certainly beat you know, any African power. The problem is there aren't really any other African powers. They're all European colonies at this point, and uh, he's still got to worry about the Italians in particular. And for the Italians, uh, the Ethiopians are really no match. And Haile Selesi knows this. That's why he's working so hard on education and the economy, right? If he's going to afford a modern military to keep his country free and independent, the country must first be able to support that. Meanwhile, Italy has not given up on her ambitions in Africa. And under the new fascist dictator Mussolini... Italy invests heavily in the military, and by the mid-1930s, even as Ethiopia is you know, mostly investing in education and basic infrastructure and that kind of thing, Italy is hitting her military peak. Right? A lot of times you, you hear the term peaking used when describing sports, right? A football team uh, you know, has a rough patch to start the season, and then all of a sudden they're playing really well, and uh, people will say, oh, they peaked, right? Everything came together for them. And sometimes after the peak, the team declines and uh, does not do well in the playoffs, and people will say, oh, they peaked too soon. Well, that's kind of what happens with Italy uh, in the run-up to World War II. Right? By the time World War II comes around, all of her military technology is a few years out of date, but at this time, being a few years out of date means you're an entire generation behind, almost. Right? Other European powers will be watching what Italy does in Ethiopia and how her planes and tanks and other technology perform, and they are going to use that information to make better designs uh, for their own equipment in the run-up to World War II. But for now, Italy is at her high point, and Ethiopia, you know, at least militarily, cannot really uh, stand up to them credibly. If Italy wants to take this opportunity to get a little revenge for the Battle of Adwa, and take that territory they covet, now is the time. And Mussolini also has a little bit of added incentive. See, Mussolini's vision is to recreate the Roman Empire. He wants the entire Mediterranean basin under Italian control. And Britain at this time is also invested heavily in the Mediterranean, mostly in and around Egypt. Uh, the Suez Canal is there, which is vital for trade with India. And there's also a lot of agriculture in Egypt, always has been throughout history. And you know, as part of this interest in the general area around Egypt, 
Britain has just signed an agreement with Ethiopia allowing them to build a dam along the Blue Nile. Right, that's the eastern branch of the Nile that originates in Ethiopia. Uh, this will do a couple of things. It will allow enough water through to irrigate Egyptian cotton, which the British want. Uh, but it will also produce electricity for Ethiopia, which Haile Selassie wants. It's a win-win. Uh, but Mussolini is seeing this, and he is seeing not only is Ethiopia still independent, but Ethiopia is down here you know, making deals with the British, and, well, that just increases British influence in the region. Mussolini can't have that. Uh, meanwhile... If he were to, say, invade and conquer Ethiopia, well, he could do all kinds of things, like, say, cut off the Blue Nile and Egyptian cotton, strike an economic blow against the British Empire. This is you know, a hedge. It's, it's something he can do to counter British influence in the area. But you know, he can't just up and invade, right? Even... You know, a few years later, Hitler wouldn't just up and invade. He would have to invent an excuse, right? Well, Mussolini's excuse is an incident that occurs in late November of 1934 called the Walwal Incident. At this time, there were some disputes along the border of Ethiopia and Italian Eritrea uh, as to where exactly the border lay. So uh, the British offered to mediate, and uh, they had sent some engineers along with uh, some Ethiopian troops to the border to uh, conduct this uh, survey. Well, the Italians also have troops in the area. Right? They are not just going to let this go unchallenged, um, and there's roughly 200 Italians, a similar number of Ethiopians. Uh, when the Ethiopians encounter the Italians there, more Ethiopian troops, a few hundred more, are sent uh, to reinforce. The Italians do the same. But neither side instigates anything for about a week. They just sort of sit there facing off, and meanwhile these poor British engineers are several miles away uh, making sure that His Majesty's government does not get involved if there's any shooting. And on December 5th, 1934, shots are fired. In the ensuing fight, 150 Ethiopians and 50 Italians and uh, Somalians are killed. Some of the Italian troops are you know, these Somalian colonial troops. Uh, and the difference in casualties can mostly be chalked up to the fact that the Italians had an armored car with a machine gun that was devastatingly effective. The Ethiopians, they have rifles, they have relatively modern rifles, but nothing that can compete with an armored car. It just decimates them. Both sides, after this fight, back off, and uh, a crisis begins that has come to be known as the Abyssinian Crisis. Ethiopia calls upon the League of Nations to investigate the incident. Now, the 
League of Nations Charter is an idealistic document, and part of the Charter stipulates that if two League members come into conflict, they are not to go to war, but to allow the League to arbitrate. This is a very high-minded idea, and this Abyssinian incident is the first time that it is put to the test. You see, both Italy and Ethiopia at this point are members in good standing of the League of Nations. And also, according to the agreement, other nations in the League are to remain neutral in any dispute and are actually supposed to take actions against an aggressor if you know one of the members of the League violates the treaty and invades somebody, say. Well, shortly after the Wawal incident, while the investigation is going on, French Foreign Minister Pierre Laval travels to Rome and meets with Mussolini. Now, the minutes of this meeting are kept secret. To this day, we don't know what was said in that room. But... The French and Italian governments sign six agreements dated January 6, 1935. Now, four of them are public knowledge, yet two of them remain completely secret. Now, in one of the public agreements, Mussolini reverses his stance on Germany. Right. He has kind of, at this point, been trying to play the French and the British against the Germans for his own interests. So he's been supporting Hitler in building up the Nazi military. And in this public agreement, uh, Mussolini changes his stance. He publicly opposes German rearmament. This commitment will not last for very long, but uh, one wonders why he did that. Well, could it be that in one of the two secret agreements, Pierre Laval promised that the French government would stand by and allow Italy a free hand in Ethiopia? Could explain why, even more than 80 years later, those two agreements are still secret. Britain takes a somewhat harsher tone with the Italians. A fleet of cruisers is put in place right at the mouth of the Suez Canal. Basically, the British government is threatening to cut off Italian access if they do anything, but the cruisers don't actually take any kind of action. They just sort of sit there as the Italian ships go back and forth through the Suez Canal, preparing for their invasion and moving supplies and heavy weapons into Eritrea with which to attack the Ethiopians. And in preparation as well, uh, Mussolini has a number of troops running exercises in the Italian Alps. This was ostensibly to prepare for mountain warfare in the harsh conditions of Ethiopia, but could also have been a veiled threat to Italy's European neighbors, right? Don't forget, we have an army here in Europe, too. Nothing like a little saber-rattling to make sure the League of Nations leaves you alone. 
And there are even some not-so-veiled threats. Uh, in one interview in uh, August of 1935, Mussolini said, quote, War? It would not be my choice, but the League of Nations. Whoever applies sanctions against Italy will meet the armed hostility of my people. No nation can accuse us of desiring warfare. Our cause in Ethiopia is a just one. In a few days, it will be laid before the League's Council. It will be laid before the whole world, proof that the Ethiopians are a barbaric people, sunk in the practice of slavery. Before any other nation talks of penalties against Italy, let it think well upon the consequences of such folly. Unquote. Well, what is Mussolini talking about here? Slavery? Didn't Haile Selassie not just end slavery, but enact policies to educate former slaves? Well, yes, but parts of Ethiopia are still very rural and are still ruled by tribal leaders, in effect. And in those areas, in many of them, slavery is an ancient practice that goes back thousands of years, and well, they don't really care what the emperor says. And you know, if you look hard enough you will find slavery in every society today. Nowadays, we call it human trafficking, sex trafficking in many cases, but that is slavery. If you look hard enough, you will find it. And the Italians are able to find some examples of slavery in Ethiopia to justify this idea that the Ethiopians are some kind of barbarians that need to be stopped. This is a humanitarian war. That is some incredible propaganda. But it is successful, uh, at least in terms of convincing the Italian people, which is the main group of people Mussolini needs to convince. Here is a song sung by the Italian blackshirts. Those were the fascist paramilitaries. It's a song that they sang... Uh, in the war with Ethiopia, called Fascetta Nera, which means little black face. Now, I was hoping to play the song in the original Italian, but unfortunately I cannot find a recording that is not copyrighted. So instead, I'll do the next best thing and read you a translation. But the song is about uh, the freeing of an enslaved Ethiopian girl. And in the song, she is liberated from her slavery by the heroic Italians and becomes a free woman in this new Roman Empire. This song is sung to a jaunty military beat with a tuba in the background. I mean, it's exactly what you would expect from fascist military music. Uh, but here are the lyrics. Uh, obviously, some colonial attitudes going on here, but they illustrate the effectiveness of Mussolini's uh, slavery propaganda on the Italian people. The song goes, quote, If you look at the sea from the hills, young Moor, a slave among slaves, like in a dream, you will see many ships and a tricolor waving for you. Little Abyssinian, face of bronze, wait and see, for the hour is coming when we all are with you. We shall give you another law and another king. 
our creed enjoins us to be slaves to love and give our all to freedom and duty. Bless our black shirts, the heroes that died to freed you. Little Abyssinian, face of bronze, we will carry you liberated to Rome. You will be kissed by our son and become a black shirt too. Little black face, you will be Roman. Your only flag will be the Roman flag. We'll sing in harmony with you and parade together past the Duce and the king. Unquote. Say what you want about the Italian invasion of Ethiopia, but that is some amazing propaganda. Well, the Abyssinian crisis takes several months to come to a head. Both sides are waiting for the League of Nations report, and that report is finally delivered on September 5th, 1935. Uh, in, in the report, both Ethiopia and Italy are officially exonerated. This was a mistake. A couple of people opened fire when they shouldn't have. Everybody else joined in. Neither country is at fault for what happened at the Wawal incident, according to this report. But the wheels of war are already in motion at this point. Italy has moved thousands of men and hundreds of artillery and aircraft into Eritrea. And very shortly, around the end of September, middle to end of September... The rainy season is giving way to the dry season in Ethiopia, and the dirt roads, which, despite Haile Selesi's highways, make up most of the roads in the country, uh, these dirt roads are still passable. And on October 3, 1935, without declaration of war, Italian troops under General Emilio de Bono attack from Eritrea. It is during the opening phase of the war that the Italians also try some propaganda on the Ethiopians. Uh, planes fly overhead, dropping flyers, encouraging the people to denounce Haile Selassie and support the, quote, true emperor, Iesu, right? The fellow who preceded Haile Selassie, who's still in prison. Flying planes and dropping flyers also serves another purpose in warfare. If you can fly overhead with impunity and drop flyers, what's to stop you from coming back the next time with bombs if the people don't do what you say? Well, Haile Selassie does not let this propaganda take root. Uh, Iesu dies in prison under very mysterious circumstances in November of 1935, and it's safe to say that the majority of historians believe that uh, he did not die of natural causes. Italian progress on the ground, meanwhile, is slow. Uh, de Bono is a very cautious, methodical general, and he's not moving as quickly as Mussolini wants. He, right, Mussolini wants this war to be more or less over by the time the rainy season sets in. That's not going to happen if De Bono keeps dithering along the border, just slowly creeping forward. So Mussolini fires De Bono, and he replaces him with a new general named Pietro Badoglio. And Pietro Badoglio is a much more aggressive man. We'll talk about his campaign in just a second. For now, uh, let's take a second to look at 
how the international community is responding to this. Right? Well, it's a pretty big deal abroad, right? especially for the millions and millions of people in the black diaspora, right? The people who were brought out of Africa in slavery for the most part and who live all around the world, many in America. Uh, 20,000 American blacks march in Harlem in solidarity with the Ethiopian people. There are actually uh, 1,500 Jamaicans who sign a petition to King George V of England uh, to be allowed to join the Ethiopian military. At the time, Jamaica was a British colony, and therefore the Jamaicans were British subjects, and they needed the king's permission if they were going to go fight in somebody else's army. Well, what about Italians abroad? A lot of people in the United States, particularly at this time, who were either born in Italy or whose parents were born there, Italians abroad were more divided on the war. In New York City, for instance, 15,000 Italian-Americans attend a rally uh, to support the Ethiopians and to burn a 20-foot effigy of Mussolini. On the other hand, in December 1935, Mayor Fiorello LaGuardia would present the Italian Consul General with a $100,000 check, and that check had been raised from local Italian-Americans. So, a bit of a split there. And when Italy proceeds further into Ethiopia in 1936 under Badoglio, uh, this would eventually come to a head. There would be riots in New York with black and white anti-fascists uh, indiscriminately destroying businesses owned by Italian-Americans. Uh, it was a divisive issue for people the world over. And in response to the invasion, the League of Nations does impose some sanctions on Italy. In response to the sanctions, though, Mussolini once again uh, exhibits some amazing propaganda skills. He uses the sanctions to create a sense of unity for the Italian people. As one example of this, he holds a symbolic sacrifice of gold in Rome. And there's this giant crucible, a giant melting pot, and uh, it's surrounded by incense. The whole area is filled with the smoke of incense when you see these videos, uh, signifying almost a religious sacrifice. And over 250,000 Romans uh, come to this sacrifice and throw their gold wedding rings into the crucible. And in return for their sacrifice, they receive iron rings signifying, if you will, a marriage to the fascist state. Again, it takes an impressive mind to come up with some of these moves. And oddly enough, out of everybody, uh, Nazi Germany is one of the few countries to help Ethiopia. You would normally think of the Nazis as being the bad guys, especially when there are, you know, Italians in the picture. My goodness, that's two of the three Axis powers. But now here in 1936, uh, Germany 
is having a little bit of a tiff with Italy. Uh, right? Remember, Hitler around this time is trying to annex Austria. Right? He's just going to take it. And Italy is opposed to this because well, Austria is right on their border, and you know that would put Germany right on their border, and this Hitler guy is kind of aggressive. Uh, so... Hitler is mad that Italy is opposing him taking over Austria, so he sends a bunch of rifles and small anti-aircraft guns to the Ethiopians. Odd footnote of history. Meanwhile, in Ethiopia, the situation is not very good. Strategically, right now, Ethiopia is sandwiched between Italian Eritrea to the north and Italian Somaliland to the south, so she faces a potential invasion here on two fronts, and needless to say, she still lags technologically. For an example, Addis Ababa at this time has one power plant, two movie theaters, and no sewer system. Compare that to Rome at the time, and you see what the Ethiopians are dealing with. Italy has the best-equipped army in Europe at the time, and the Ethiopians have Mosin Nagant rifles. And many of them, when it comes down to it, will end up with spears and swords because you can only lose so many rifles in a war without more rifles coming in before you start having to resort to less modern technology. In addition, uh, Haile Selassie is facing some cultural problems with his army. See, many of them are still tribal forces, right? He has his own army, but then most of his forces are led by local tribal leaders. And uh, these tribal leaders are still wearing you know, bright robes and jewelry and you know, carrying giant shiny shields into battle. Again, this sort of very flashy culture here, and... In melee combat, a lot of that may even make sense, but, you know, these shields and robes and everything just make these entire forces just magnets for Italian bombers. You can see them from miles away. Haile Selassie has adopted a khaki uniform for his troops, much like most modern armies at the time. Right, he'd done this all the way back in the 1920s, but the tribal leaders had resisted this, and now many Ethiopian men would pay the price for their tribal leaders' sense of style. Italy didn't just bomb Ethiopian troops, either. Badoglio's bombers conducted widespread campaigns of terror bombing on civilian areas. We saw this in the Spanish Civil War. We'll see it all the time in World War II on all sides. And we're seeing it here in Ethiopia. But what we usually saw in World War II were civilians crowding into concrete bomb shelters. What we see in Ethiopia are school children hiding out in you know, little dugouts made of dirt with you know, some wood reinforcement. Right? They might protect you from a little falling debris, but if a bomb lands there, you're done. 
and the handful of anti-aircraft guns the Ethiopians have are not terribly successful. There simply are not enough guns, and there is not enough ammunition for the guns there are for them to make much of an impact at all on Badoglio's bombers. The Italians also pay Muslim tribes in the north and south to fight with them against Haile Selassie, again trying to exploit uh, some religious divisions in the country. This is only partially successful. You get a couple isolated cases of individual tribes joining with the Italians, but for the most part, uh, again, the Ethiopians remain united against any sort of colonizer. And for now, all Badoglio can really do is drop some bombs. See, just as he was taking over command in December 1935, an Ethiopian army had counterattacked the Italians, uh, pushed them back a few miles. Uh, Badoglio successfully drives them off, but he needs time to regroup before he can you know, resume Mussolini's much-desired offensive. Uh, and to accelerate things along when he begins this offensive in January, Badoglio's bombers start using mustard gas. This is a flagrant violation of international law. The gas is used not just to attack troop formations, but to poison the ground. You spread enough mustard gas around an area, it's going to take a while for you know rain and everything to sort of wash that out. And in the meantime, the barefoot Ethiopian soldiers are being badly burned marching across some of this land, even when they're not being hit by the actual gas. And uh, uh, another Ethiopian army is defeated at this point by Badoglio, who is marching steadily into the country at this point. Haile Selassie urges his generals to fight guerrilla style. A few do and are successful at attacking Italian supply columns, things like that, but most of them want to fight the Italians head-on. And this is in part because of Badoglio's bombing strategy. He knows he can't win a guerrilla war. His whole terror campaign is designed to provoke the Ethiopians into open combat. Right? You make somebody hurt, you invoke a sort of national fight-or-flight response. They're either going to submit or they're going to come try and punch you in the nose. That's what Badoglio wants. He wants... If not surrender, then a quick out-and-out -out fight that he can win. And this approach is so successful that after the fall of a couple more Ethiopian armies, Haile Selassie himself rallies the last Ethiopian army that he can truly put in the field. And he leads a counterattack personally in March. His force fares no better than the others. They are simply unable to cope with the Italian advantages in technology. The machine guns and the tanks, and of course the ever-present bombers, just make it impossible for them to fight in the open field. By the end of spring, with his army 
scattered and retreating across the countryside, the situation is desperate. Not only are Badoglio's forces invading in the north from Eritrea, there's also a single Italian division down south in Somaliland that was supposed to just stop the Ethiopians from, you know, counter-invading and, you know, punching into Somaliland. Well, instead, with all the fighting going on up north, this force has just been slowly advancing against minimal opposition and squeezing the country. When the Italians take the ancient capital of Gondar, the general in charge marches into the city carrying an ancient Roman standard. This is the death knell of Ethiopia. And worse, Italian bombers are striking into Addis Ababa itself with impunity. With his armies collapsing, unable to defend even his capital, Haile Selassie makes a pilgrimage to the ancient Church of St. George at Lalibela. That church dug into the rock that is so sacred to the Ethiopian people, and there he prays for guidance. And while he's there, he's perilously close to enemy lines, within just a couple miles of Badoglio's forces, but it's important to him to visit this sacred place for what may be the last time. And after this trip, he decides to evacuate the country and make a plea for help at the United Nations. So on May 2nd, Emperor Haile Selassie boards a train for Djibouti, right, that French colony up to the north, to which the Ethiopians still have access. And the cabinet and the rest of his government, they abandon Addis Ababa and relocate to the southern city of Gore. Haile Selassie proceeds to the city of Geneva. And on June 30th, 1936, he addresses the General Assembly. He begins his speech with the words, Mr. President, addressing the President of the General Assembly, and before he can say anything else, he's cut off by the jeers of Italian fascists in the galleries. Uh, The lights need to be turned out. That doesn't work to shut these guys up, so uh, eventually uh, the security has to be called in to eject the fascists from the room. And at that point, the emperor is finally able to speak. What follows is most of Haile Selassie's address. There are a couple parts where I've left things out just because it would have been too long and kind of boring, and this is, after all, supposed to be entertaining as well as informative. But here is most of what Emperor Haile Selassie said that day. Quote, I, Haile Selassie I, Emperor of Ethiopia, am here today to claim that justice which is due to my people, and the assistance promised to it eight months ago, when fifty nations asserted that aggression had been committed in violation of international treaties. There is no precedent for a head of state himself speaking in this assembly. 
But there is also no precedent for a people being victim of such injustice and being at present threatened by abandonment to its aggressor. Also, there has never before been an example of any government proceeding to the systematic extermination of a nation by barbarous means, in violation of the most solemn promises made by the nations of the earth that there should not be used against innocent human beings the terrible poison of harmful gases. It is to defend a people struggling for its age-old independence that the head of the Ethiopian Empire has come to Geneva to fulfill the supreme duty, after having himself fought at the head of his armies. I pray to Almighty God that he may spare nations the terrible sufferings that have just been inflicted on my people, and of which the chiefs who accompany me here have been the horrified witnesses. It is my duty to inform the governments assembled in Geneva, responsible as they are for the lives of millions of men, women, and children, of the deadly peril which threatens them by describing to them the fate which has been suffered by Ethiopia. It is not only upon warriors that the Italian government has made war. It has above all attacked populations far removed from hostilities in order to terrorize and exterminate them. At the beginning... Towards the end of 1935, Italian aircraft hurled upon my army's bombs of tear gas. Their effects were but slight. The soldiers learned to scatter, waiting until the wind had rapidly dispersed the poisonous gases. The Italian aircraft then resorted to mustard gas. Barrels of liquid were hurled upon armed groups. But this means also was not effective. The liquid affected only a few soldiers, and barrels upon the ground were themselves a warning to troops and to the population of the danger. It was at the time when the operations for the encircling of Macale were taking place that the Italian command, fearing a rout, followed the procedure which it is now my duty to denounce to the world. Special sprayers were installed on board aircraft so that they could vaporize over vast areas of territory a fine, death-dealing rain. Groups of nine, fifteen, eighteen aircraft followed one another so that the fog issuing from them formed a continuous sheet. It was thus that, as from the end of January 1936, soldiers, women, children, cattle, rivers, lakes, and pastures were drenched continuously with this deadly rain in order to systematically kill off all living creatures, in order to more surely poison waters and pastures, the Italian command made its aircraft pass over again and again. That was its chief method of warfare. The very refinement of barbarism consisted in carrying ravage and terror into the most densely populated parts of the territory, the points farthest removed from the scene of hostilities. The object was to scatter fear and death over a great part of the Ethiopian territory. These fearful tactics succeeded. Men and animals succumbed. The deadly rain that fell from the aircraft made all those whom it touched fly shrieking with pain. All those who drank the poisoned water or ate the infected food also succumbed in dreadful suffering. In tens of thousands, the victims of the Italian mustard gas fell. It is in order to denounce to the civilized world the tortures inflicted upon the Ethiopian people that I resolved to come to Geneva. None other than myself and my brave companions-in-arms could bring the League of Nations the undeniable proof. The appeals of my delegates addressed to the League of Nations had remained without any answer. My delegates had not been witnesses. 
That is why I decided to come myself to bear witness against the crime perpetrated against my people and give Europe a warning of the doom that awaits it if it should bow before the accomplished fact. Is it necessary to remind the assembly of the various stages of the Ethiopian drama? For twenty years past, either as heir apparent, regent of the empire, or as emperor, I have never ceased to use all my efforts to bring my country the benefits of civilization, and in particular to establish relations of good neighborliness with adjacent powers. In particular, I succeeded in concluding with Italy the Treaty of Friendship of 1928, which absolutely prohibited the resort, under any pretext whatsoever, to force of arms, substituting for force and pressure the conciliation and arbitration on which civilized nations have based international order. The Wawal incident, in December 1934, came as a thunderbolt to me. The Italian provocation was obvious, and I did not hesitate to appeal to the League of Nations. I invoked the provisions of the Treaty of 1928, the principles of the Covenant. I urged the procedure of conciliation and arbitration. Unhappily for Ethiopia, this was the time when a certain government considered that the European situation made it imperative at all costs to obtain the friendship of Italy. The price paid was the abandonment of Ethiopian independence to the greed of the Italian government. This secret agreement, contrary to the obligations of the covenant, he's talking about the secret agreement between the French and the Italians here, uh, this secret agreement, contrary to the obligations of the covenant, has exerted a great influence over the course of events. Ethiopia and the whole world have suffered and are still suffering today its disastrous consequences. This first violation of the covenant was followed by many others. Feeling itself encouraged in its policy against Ethiopia, the Rome government feverishly made war preparations, thinking that the concerted pressure which was beginning to be exerted on the Ethiopian government might perhaps not overcome the resistance of my people to Italian domination. The time had to come. Thus, all sorts of difficulties were placed in the way with a view to breaking up the procedure of conciliation and arbitration. All kinds of obstacles were placed in the way of that procedure. Governments tried to prevent the Ethiopian government from finding arbitrators amongst their nationals. When once the arbitral tribunal was set up, pressure was exercised so that an award favorable to Italy would be given. All this was in vain. The arbitrators, two of whom were Italian officials, were forced to recognize unanimously that in the Walwal incident, as in the subsequent incidents, no international responsibility was to be attributed to Ethiopia. At this point, I'm going to end the quote for a second, because Haile Selesi goes on to detail all the various findings of the International Commission uh, that had found Ethiopia blameless in the Wawal incident. Then Haile Selesi goes on, and fans of history can hear in his words the echoes of Munich, the echoes of the Western policy of appeasement. He says, quote, Once the Wawal dispute had been settled by arbitration, however, the Italian government submitted its detailed memorandum to the Council in support of its claim to liberty of action. It asserted that a case like that of Ethiopia cannot be settled by the means provided by the Covenant. It stated that, since this question affects vital interests and is of primary importance to Italian security and civilization, it would be failing in its most elementary duty 
did it not cease once and for all to place any confidence in Ethiopia, reserving full liberty to adopt any measures that may become necessary to ensure the safety of its colonies and to safeguard its own interests. I did not hesitate to declare that I did not wish for war, that it was imposed upon me, and I should struggle solely for the independence and integrity of my people. And in that struggle, I was the defender of the cause of all small states exposed to the greed of a powerful neighbor. In October 1935, the 52 nations who are listening to me today gave me an assurance that the aggressor would not triumph, that the resources of the covenant would be employed in order to ensure the reign of right and the failure of violence. I ask the 52 nations not to forget today the policy upon which they embarked eight months ago, and on faith of which I directed the resistance of my people against the aggressor whom they had denounced to the world. Despite the inferiority of my weapons, the complete lack of aircraft, artillery, munitions, hospital services, my confidence in the League was absolute. I thought it to be impossible that 52 nations, including the most powerful in the world, should be successfully opposed by a single aggressor. Counting on the faith due to treaties, I had made no preparation for war, and that is the case with certain small countries in Europe. When the danger became more urgent, being aware of my responsibilities towards my people, during the first six months of 1935 I tried to acquire armaments. Many governments proclaimed an embargo to prevent my doing so, whereas the Italian government, through the Suez Canal, was given all facilities for transporting without cessation and without protest troops, arms, and munitions. On October 3, 1935, the Italian troops invaded my territory. Only a few hours later did I decree a general mobilization. In my desire to maintain peace, I had, following the example of a great country in Europe on the eve of the Great War, caused my troops to withdraw 30 kilometers so as to remove any pretext of provocation. War then took place in the atrocious conditions which I have laid before the Assembly. In that unequal struggle between a government commanding more than 42 million inhabitants having at its disposal financial, industrial, and technical means which enabled it to create unlimited quantities of the most death-dealing weapons, and, on the other hand, a small people of 12 million inhabitants, without arms, without resources, having on its side only the justice of its own cause and the promise of the League of Nations. What real assistance was given to Ethiopia by the 52 nations who had declared the Rome government guilty of a breach of the covenant, and had undertaken to prevent the triumph of the aggressor? Has each of the member states, as it was its duty to do in virtue of its signature appended to Article 15 of the covenant, considered the aggressor as having committed an act of war personally directed against itself? I had placed all my hopes in the execution of these undertakings. My confidence had been confirmed by the repeated declarations made in the Council to the effect that aggression must not be rewarded, and that force would only end by being compelled to bow before right. In December 1935, the Council made it quite clear that its feelings were in harmony with those of hundreds of millions of people who, in all parts of the world, had protested against the proposal to dismember Ethiopia. 
it was constantly repeated that there was a conflict between the Italian government and the League of Nations, and that is why I personally refused all proposals to my personal advantage made to me by the Italian government. If only I would betray my people in the covenant of the League of Nations. I was defending the cause of all small peoples who are threatened with aggression. What have become of the promises made to me as long ago as October 1935? I noted with grief, but without surprise, that three powers considered their undertakings under the covenant of absolutely no value. Their connections with Italy impelled them to refuse to take any measures whatsoever in order to stop Italian aggression. On the contrary, it was a profound disappointment to me to learn the attitude of a certain government which, whilst ever protesting its scrupulous attachment to the covenant, has tirelessly used all its efforts to prevent its observance. As soon as any measure which was likely to be rapidly effective was proposed, various pretexts were devised in order to postpone even consideration of the measure. Did the secret agreements of January 1935 provide for this tireless obstruction? The Ethiopian government never expected other governments to shed their soldiers' blood to defend the covenant when their own immediately personal interests were not at stake. Ethiopian warriors asked only for means to defend themselves. On many occasions I have asked for financial assistance for the purchase of arms. That assistance has been constantly refused me. What then, in practice, is the meaning of Article 16 of the Covenant and of Collective Security? The Ethiopian government's use of the railway from Djibouti to Addis Ababa was in practice a tenuous method of transport of arms intended for the Ethiopian forces. At the present moment, this is the chief, if not the only, means of supply of the Italian armies of occupation. The rules of neutrality should have prohibited transports intended for Italian forces, but there is not even neutrality since Article 16 lays upon every member state of the League the duty not to remain neutral, but to come to the aid not of the aggressor but of the victim of aggression. Has the covenant been respected? Is it today being respected? Finally, a statement has just been made in their parliaments by the governments of certain powers, amongst them the most influential members of the League of Nations, that since the aggressor has succeeded in occupying a large part of Ethiopian territory, they propose not to continue the application of any economic and financial measures that may have been decided upon against the Italian government. These are the circumstances in which, at the request of the Argentine government, the Assembly of the League of Nations meets to consider the situation created by the Italian aggression. I assert that the problem submitted to the Assembly today is a much wider one. It is not merely a question of the settlement of Italian aggression. It is collective security. It is the very existence of the League of Nations. It is the confidence that each state is to place in international treaties. It is the value of promises made to small states that their integrity and their independence shall be respected and ensured. It is the principle of the equality of states on the one hand, or otherwise the obligation laid upon small powers to accept the bonds of vassalship. In a word, it is international morality that is at stake. Have the signatures appended to a treaty value only in so far as the signatory powers have a personal, direct, and immediate interest involved? No subtlety can change the problem or shift the grounds of the discussion. 
it is in all sincerity that I submit these considerations to the assembly. At a time when my people are threatened with extermination, when the support of the League may ward off the final blow, may I be allowed to speak with complete frankness, without reticence, in all directness such as is demanded by the rule of equality as between all state members of the League? Apart from the kingdom of the Lord, there is not on this earth any nation that is superior to any other. Should it happen that a strong government finds it may with impunity destroy a weak people, then the hour strikes for that weak people to appeal to the League of Nations to give its judgment and all freedom. God and history will remember your judgment. Representatives of the world, I have come to Geneva to discharge in your midst the most painful of the duties of a head of state. What reply shall I take back to my people? Unquote. And in response to Emperor Haile Selassie's plea, the League of Nations does nothing. When people talk about the history of World War II, which where we're standing is right around the corner, they often talk about the policy of appeasement, right? the effort by Western governments, particularly the British and the French, to give Hitler and Mussolini whatever they wanted. Just so long as a war doesn't break out, please, you can have most of Czechoslovakia, Herr Führer. Just don't hurt us. But if you're looking at the question honestly, Austria wasn't the first domino to fall. Czechoslovakia wasn't the first domino to fall. Ethiopia was the first test of this idea of collective security. And the League of Nations fails the test. And with his country now more or less completely overrun, Haile Selassie goes into exile in Bath, England. There he almost dies of pneumonia due to the unfamiliar cold climate. He does recover. He ends up writing uh, an autobiography when he's there. And even in exile, Haile Selassie continues to advocate for his people, right? He continues to remind the world that Ethiopia is not an Italian colony. The following December, January, and February, again during the dry season, General Badoglio would take his men on a forced march to Addis Ababa to arrive before the rainy season. And on February 19, 1937, Italian forces would enter the city. The occupation at first is relatively civilized. There are a few executions of noblemen who had refused to publicly swear submission to their new Italian overlords, but uh, no widespread violence or anything like that yet. And the Italian viceroy, a man named Rodolfo Graziani, is holding a public ceremony to accept this oath of fealty from the Ethiopian nobles. And after he accepts this oath, he is distributing alms to the church and to many of the poor from the city. This is, again, more of that 
fascist propaganda, right? Make a big show of giving money to the poor and even to the church as you come into the capital. It makes you look like benevolent overlords. As Graziani is handing out these alms, a pair of Ethiopian freedom fighters in the crowd throw grenades into the assembled Italian troops. And the Italian troops fire back indiscriminately into the crowd. And many of the people who are killed are beggars collecting alms. And three days of horror would commence an event known to the world as the Addis Ababa Massacre, but to Ethiopians simply as Yakatit 12. Um, Yakatit is the month of the Ethiopian calendar in which this happened. Uh, sort of like when you say to an American, where were you on 9-11? You don't have to explain to them what 9-11 means. Well, if you were to say Yakatit 12 to an Ethiopian, you would not have to explain to them what that means. From February 19th to February 21st, 1937, between 20 and 30,000 Ethiopians are massacred. That is a significant percentage of the city's population. Between about 12 and 20 percent, depending on what numbers you use, are killed by the Italian troops. And in part, a lot of this can be chalked up to the fact that those troops were leaderless at the crucial moment when the shooting first started. Graziani himself was wounded in the grenade attack. So where a competent leader, particularly one with a flair for propaganda, could have quickly responded and told his men to stand down and stop shooting these people, Graziani was bleeding out on the ground and having first aid applied and was then in the hospital for three days. And it's, it's not until Graziani wakes up on February 21st and orders an end to the killing that the Addis Ababa massacre, Yakata 12, ends. Although atrocities continue in more remote areas for several weeks. This activity by the Italians is too much even for the League of Nations. And on December 11th, 1937, the League of Nations votes to condemn Italy and Mussolini withdraws from the League. But the League's action was far too little, far too late. Italy controls Ethiopia in all but name. But they only really control the major cities. Right? The people in the countryside are mostly freedom fighters and virtually impossible to subdue and loyal to their emperor in exile. And speaking of their emperor in exile, Haile Selassie experiences some personal tragedy during this time in England. 
At first, when the Italians first come into Addis Ababa, two of his sons-in-law are among the people executed by the Italians, and one of his daughters is taken captive to Italy, and there she dies in captivity in 1941. Ironic, in the song Nera we talked about earlier, an Ethiopian slave girl is brought back to Rome to be free. Well, in reality, an Ethiopian princess was taken captive to Italy to prison. But Ethiopia does not stay down for very long. In 1939, as we all know, Hitler invades Poland and World War II begins, and pretty soon, most of the world is going at it. And uh, just so happens that the British have a colony, British Somaliland, right next to Ethiopia. Isn't that convenient? This is somewhere where the British can strike at the Italians overseas, you know, take their small colonial empire here in Africa. Well, Who's going to be there right with the British forces? Haile Selassie. This is not just any emperor. This is a warrior emperor. And in January 1941, Haile Selassie and a small band of followers join forces with uh, some British troops that are invading Ethiopia from Sudan. When they cross the border, they raise the banner of the Lion of Judah. And Haile Selassie rallies the people from the countryside and raises an army of liberation to fight alongside the British and free his country and drive out the invaders. And on May 5th, 1941, a mere four months after re-entering Ethiopia, Haile Selassie returns to Addis Ababa in triumph. And, as one might expect, he gives a speech. And this speech is reminiscent of Lincoln's second inaugural address. With malice towards none, with charity towards all. Well, Haile Selassie makes a plea with his people for forgiveness after the war. He says, quote, When we say, let us rejoice with our hearts, let not our rejoicing be in any other way but in the spirit of Christ. Do not return evil for evil. Do not indulge in the atrocities which the enemy has been practicing in his usual way, even up until the last moment. Take care not to spoil the good name of Ethiopia by acts which are worthy of the enemy. Unquote. And in the same speech, Haile Selassie also reaffirms his policy of modernization. He's just gotten back to his capital, and he's already planning to rebuild even stronger. He says, quote, The tribulations and afflictions which befell us during the past five years and which cannot be recounted and enumerated in detail will be a great lesson to us all. And with industry, unity, cooperation, and love engraved in your hearts will be a great incentive to you to be my helpers in the construction of the Ethiopia which I have in mind. 
In the new Ethiopia, I want you to be a people undivided and endowed with freedom and equality before the law. You will have to join me in my efforts for the prosperity of the country, for the riches of the people, for the development of agriculture, commerce, education, learning, for the protection of the life and resources of our people, and for the perfection, on modern lines, of the country's administration. Unquote. And in the post-war years, Haile Selassie maintains his dedication to peace and reconciliation. But his eyes have been opened to the world. He does not trust European powers to guarantee Ethiopian security. Instead... Haile Selassie decides he's going to build relationships with other African countries. Right? This is the era of decolonization. Right? The old empires are leaving their colonial possessions, and those colonies are becoming once again countries in their own right. This is the time when India gains its independence, and between the end of the war and the middle of the 1960s, virtually all of Africa gains its independence. Just as quickly as the scramble for Africa happened and all of those countries were snatched up, uh, decolonization happened and they all became independent nations. Now, most of these, though, were very young countries. I mean, in terms of, you know, the governments as institutions. And they were struggling countries. And a lot of times where the British or the French left, they left borders that did not make sense uh, for the local people, right? These were colonial borders, and these led to conflicts. And Ethiopia, meanwhile was untouched from those tribulations. Now, that is not to say that Ethiopia did not have trouble at this time. But compared to pretty much the rest of Africa, Ethiopia was in pretty good shape. And this set Haile Selassie up where he could be a leader, at least a symbolic leader, to the entire continent. And... To this end, he focuses on education. I remember before World War II, he was doing this with his university. Addis Ababa University is still there. But what he does is he creates schools throughout the entire country. And he actually acts as his own minister of education. Right, The military and... Uh, Industry and other aspects of society are run by other government ministers who just report to him, but Haile Selassie himself takes personal responsibility for every aspect of Ethiopia's education system. What he wants to do with this system is to create a generation of educated Ethiopians that can then in turn go out to other African countries and help spread education there. He also uses uh, education 
as a means to get other Africans to come into Ethiopia. Right? In 1958, for instance, he begins a program where he invites 200 students from other African countries to study at Addis Ababa University. Education is going to be his main export to the rest of Africa. He also wants to import education from abroad. Right? Remember we said he doesn't really trust outside powers to guarantee Ethiopian independence anymore. Who can blame him? But he does still value the arts and uh, culture, and he wants tourism. Right? He doesn't just want tourism as an export either. Right? We think of you know, tourism-based economies where all the money comes from you know, people visiting. He wants tourism to attract educated people from abroad to come and see an enlightened and cultured country and want to live there. Right? So he wants people from Europe and other developed countries to move into Ethiopia. Why? So they can contribute to his education system. In the process of creating this tourism program, uh, he sends out an envoy to uh, Germany, a man named uh, Habdi Selesse Tefese. And Habdi Selesse Tefese recounts a story. Uh, he recounts this story in an interview with Chinese-owned uh, network, uh, CGTN Africa. He says... Uh, that he was sent on the very first flight from uh, Addis Ababa to Frankfurt, Germany, to get ideas for tourism. And he says that, uh, quote, The emperor called me. He said, You have to do this job. I said, Your majesty, I know nothing about this job. He told me, Try. That word I remember. Try. It was like an order, a camouflaged order, unquote. In this tourism czar, Tefese, he would ultimately coin a famous slogan for Ethiopia, uh, 13 months of sunshine. It was very successful. Now, all of these efforts in tourism and the arts, I should mention also, uh, Haile Selassie, personally started and uh, patronized a uh, theater in Addis Ababa as well. All of these efforts uh, make uh, Haile Selassie, uh, the Lion of Judah, a symbol of African independence in general and modernization for the entire continent. And at the time of decolonization, this gives Haile Selassie a lot of power. And this coincides with another endeavor that Haile Selassie is undertaking. Uh, see, the war with Italy and uh, then World War II had just devastated the country's road system. Those highways he had so lovingly built to connect his major cities, they were gone. And rather than rebuild them all, Haile Selassie thinks bigger. He builds a network of airstrips to tie his country together. And to use these airstrips, he does not contract out some foreign airline or something. No, he creates his own airline. 
Ethiopian Airlines, which is run by the Ethiopian state. They cut out the middleman, and Addis Ababa ends up becoming not just the hub for Ethiopia, but a major international travel hub, the largest in Africa. Addis Ababa, because it is so well connected to other African countries, becomes the African headquarters for the United Nations and the headquarters for the African Union. In addition to moving other Africans in and around Ethiopia, Ethiopian Airlines also gives Haile Selassie an easy way to get to other African countries. He uses his airline for diplomacy. And he does this almost immediately. I mean, World War II comes to an end. On August 15, 1945, Ethiopian Airlines is established in December of 1945 and makes its first flight in April of 1946. Haile Selassie recognizes the importance of air transport in the modern era. And during the era of decolonization, he is always mediating in disputes between other African countries. It seems like any time trouble flares up in Africa, Haile Selassie is flying in on one of his airplanes to see if he can help solve things. And he also travels around the world. Among other foreign leaders, he meets with U.S. Presidents Kennedy and Eisenhower. Ethiopian Airlines, by the way, remains an active airline to this day. In addition to being the largest in Africa, they're also, I think, the fourth largest cargo carrier in the world. They move a lot of freight. It is reminiscent, in a way, of the story of Menelik I and his absconding with the Ark of the Covenant from King Solomon. He escaped, according to legend, in flying wagons. Well, Haile Selassie has, in a sense, made that legend a reality. Ethiopia will become great and prosperous through the air. But despite all of his investments in education, tourism, the arts, his airline, nonetheless, Haile Selassie is not able to fully modernize Ethiopia. Most of the land is still owned by either the nobility or the Ethiopian Orthodox Church. I think the church alone owns on the order of 30% of the land in the country. Land reform has eluded Haile Selassie because of, in part, because of the democratic constitution he set up. The legislature is almost entirely made up of the nobility, and they're willing to go along with Haile Selassie on all his other initiatives, but they are not willing to go along with land reform, right? 
that would mean basically giving up the source of their wealth, all this real estate that they own. With the rise of modern economies, and in particular with the influence of Marxism in Africa, the idea of feudal land ownership cannot stand. And in February of 1974, there is a general labor strike. And as part of this strike, a number of soldiers join along, which turns into a general mutiny in the military. Now, this is scary because this is how a number of uh, communist revolutions have started uh, with a military strike or mutiny. So, in the wake of this fiasco, the prime minister resigns and a committee called the DERG, which is just a gay-as word meaning committee, the DERG is set up by the military to investigate the mutiny. In the course of its investigation, the DERG itself gains a lot of power. In July, for instance, they demand the authority to arrest even top military brass. They tell Haile Selassie, look, this corruption, this uh, rot goes all the way to the top. You've got to let us root it out. And Haile Selassie concedes. In September, the DERG renames itself the Provisional Military Administrative Council. And they put the royal family under house arrest. They depose Haile Selassie. And the image of his deposition is tragic if you know a thing or two about the man. We talked a little bit about Haile Selassie's love for cars. Fancy luxury cars, in particular. He loved his Rolls Royces, right? Haile Selassie is marched out of the imperial palace he built and ushered into the back of a Volkswagen Beetle from whence he is taken to prison. Well, after Haile Selassie is deposed, the Provisional Military Administrative Council is divided into basically two camps. There are liberals who want a constitutional monarchy. They just want a different relative of Haile Selassie to come in and be emperor, someone they can control a little bit. Uh, and the other camp is made up of Marxist-Leninists. And in March 1975, the Marxist-Leninists come out on top. This is a gross oversimplification of what happens, but you could go down a whole rabbit hole just talking about these couple of years under the DERG and then the uh, Provisional Military Administrative Council. Um, on August 27th, 1975... Five months after the Marxist-Leninist takeover of Ethiopia, Haile Selassie dies in prison, officially of respiratory failure. He is given no funeral and is buried under a concrete slab on the Imperial Palace grounds. In 1994, 
an Ethiopian court would find that Haile Selassie had been in good health in his final days and was in fact murdered on the order of Derg leadership. After the fall of the communist regime, his remains would be exhumed and buried alongside Menelik II's in the same mausoleum where he had faced off with Zedito's supporters so many years before. Well, the story of Haile Selassie may have come to an end, but the story of Ethiopia and her people lives on. Under the new regime, religion is disestablished almost immediately. And on March 4, 1975, the Derg announces nationalization of all rural land and its redistribution to the peasantry. And the land reform does win the Marxists a lot of support, but on the other hand, the disestablishment of religion is deeply, deeply unpopular in this deeply religious country. And the country falls into civil war, not just over religion, but over ethnic issues. Uh, over the next several years, the first civil war is uh, because of ethnic Eritrean and uh, Tigray peoples who oppose the new regime. Uh, then there's another civil war over political disputes within the new regime. And then there's another civil war amongst the leftists who won the first civil war, an internecine battle for supremacy there. And throughout all of this, there are multiple atrocities committed on all sides. And the ultimate victor, again, grossly oversimplifying this entire period, but the ultimate victor is a man named Mengitsu Haile Miriam. However, he has only worsened the situation in Ethiopia by practicing scorched-earth warfare. Right? To deny his enemies supplies, he has burned crops and slaughtered livestock and... What happens when you do this? Uh, you don't just deny food to your enemies, you also deny food to your own people. And Mengitsu's rule is not a proud one. In the mid-1980s, there is another war which leads to more scorched-earth warfare and an even bigger famine that gains worldwide attention. This is one of those famines where you have the infomercials on TV with the sad music and the lady asking you to please send a dollar every week or something like that. Right, this is bad. And the situation is worsened by never-ending ethnic strife and rebellion. Uh, even when international groups are able to get together some aid and get it into the country, most of the time it either gets taken by the regime or taken by some rebel group to take care of their people, so it's not distributed properly. And the people of Ethiopia are just tired of Mengitsu's rule and his communist regime. He remains the general secretary of the Communist Party until 1987, when Ethiopia adopts a semi-democratic constitution. They have a referendum on a constitution, but... You still have to be a communist to run for office, so it's still a one-party system, and Mengitsu serves as the first elected president in uh, 1987 through 1991. 
1991, Mengitsu is ousted. There's a very complicated period here that I don't even fully understand where the Soviets briefly come in and try to help, but the Soviet Union is collapsing at the same time, so that regime only lasts very briefly. And ultimately, multi-party elections are held in 1995, and Ethiopia becomes a federated democratic state. Mengitsu is convicted of genocide by an Ethiopian court and is sentenced to life in prison. But to this day, he lives in exile in Zimbabwe, where he had served as an advisor to the dictator Robert Mugabe and still lives in a luxurious palace. Ethiopia is such a free state, such a federated state, that any region of the country is allowed to leave if they want to. In fact, Eritrea did just that before the first elections were even held. In 1993, Eritrea became its own country. And what of the Solomonic line? Well, Haile Selesi's grandson, Crown Prince Zara Jacob, is alive and well in Addis Ababa. He does not have the title of emperor, he doesn't have any official power, but he is a respected figure amongst the Ethiopian people. And Haile Selassie himself continues to enjoy a large measure of popularity and even reverence. The Rastafarian movement, named for Haile Selassie's original name, Rastafari Makonnen. The Rastafarian movement was founded in Jamaica in 1930 by a preacher who believed that Haile Selassie was the second coming of Christ and that he would usher in the liberation of the black diaspora the people who were taken from Africa in slavery. And just as the Jews of old were exiled and enslaved in Babylon and returned from exile to the Promised Land, that Haile Selassie will ultimately usher in the liberation of the black people and return to the Promised Land of Africa. The movement has split since Haile Selassie's death. Some now regard him as a prophet. Others still say he is the second coming of Christ and that he never actually died and lives today in secret. Does this mean he was a living God? And if he never died, does this mean he is a living God? On a more mundane note, was Rastafari Makonnen actually the descendant of Solomon? Were any of the Solomonic dynasty? Depends what you believe about those ancient legends. And whatever happened to the Ark of the Covenant? Well, according to Ethiopian tradition, it still exists to this day. It exists at a church on an island 
in Lake Tana, called Tana Kirkos. In the center of Ethiopia's most ancient heartland. You can actually visit this church. It is tended by monks, but just as only the Jewish high priest could enter the sanctuary and tend to the Ark of the Covenant, so too only one of these monks is allowed to enter that sanctuary and see the Ark. There is one other person, though, who has been inside the sanctuary. That person is British archaeologist Edward Uhlendorf. Uhlendorf visited in 1942, shortly after the liberation of Ethiopia, and he forced his way inside the sanctuary. He was only in there for a few minutes, and he wasn't able to take any pictures, but He said that the Ark was a medieval recreation made of wood. No one else has ever seen it except for the senior monk, who will tell you that it is genuine. Does it really matter, though? Does it really make a difference whether or not the Ark in Tanakirkos is the real Ark of the Covenant or whether people just believe that it is. Napoleon said, history is a set of lies that people have agreed upon. People believe the Ark is real. And that's why it's relevant. Thanks for sticking around, folks. As promised, after this particular episode, I do have a special message, and that message is that I am launching a Patreon account. That's right. If you love relevant history, you can support my podcast by sending me a few bucks every month. Now, right now, I don't have any tiers set up. I don't have any special rewards. I'm hoping for somebody to send me a message saying, hey, here's what I'd like, but if that doesn't happen, here's kind of what I'm thinking. Anybody who starts by subscribing at $5, whenever I do introduce tiers, you'll get a free upgrade to whatever the next tier is. So say uh, all patrons get access to some kind of special chat, which I haven't developed yet, but say that happens. Well, you'd get access to that, but say there's like a $10 tier where you get a free t-shirt or something. Well, if you subscribe now, then you will get whatever that second tier reward ends up being in the future. I realize this is a dubious proposition, but if you do like what you hear and you want to support more of what you're hearing, consider subscribing. Uh, you can do that at patreon.com slash Dan Toller podcast. That's Dan T-O-L-E-R podcast. 
or just go to Patreon and search for Dan Toller, T-O-L-E-R, and you'll find it. And if you don't want to, you know, send me money every month, geez, that's fine. Just subscribe to the show. You can subscribe anywhere that you already listen to your favorite podcasts. Relevant History is available on Apple Podcasts, formerly known as iTunes. It's also available on Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Pandora, Deezer, Stitcher, Audible, Player FM, and several others which I'm sure I have forgotten to mention. But if you have a favorite podcast app, chances are it's on there. If you don't like podcast apps, don't worry. The show is also on YouTube at Relevant History. That's R-E-L-E-V-A-N-T History. You'll see the same logo you see for the podcast. It is very easy to find. And, you know, if you have any ideas or thoughts about the show or criticism or you have a suggestion for a future topic, why not shoot me a line? You can reach me on Twitter at Dan Toller Podcast. That's Dan T O L E R Podcast. Or alternatively, you could find me on Facebook at guess what? Dan Toller. Not Dan Toller Podcast. It's just Dan Toller on Facebook. And if you just want to get everything straight from the horse's mouth, Go on to dantollerpodcast.com. That's Dan, T-O-L-E-R, podcast.com. And you'll see all my episodes, all my subscription links, and my blog, which may or may not get updated eventually at some point in the future. Finally, I can also be reached at dantollerpodcast. That's Dan, T-O-L-E-R, podcast, at gmail.com. Always happy to hear from you, and thanks for listening.